<clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, hey, guess what? We are doing another listener questions episode. That's right. You send me in those questions, and I try to answer them. Uh, you guys seem to like it when I did this last time, so I'm going to do these occasionally. Um, as always, you can send me your questions at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram at creaturefeaturepod on Instagram at creaturefeetpod on Twitter. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. <laughs> something very different. Uh, but yeah, you send me in those questions and I answer them. And I got some wonderful questions to get through today. So here we go. Today in San Diego, we had some weather. What are the birds doing? How are the sparrows dealing? What about the owls that live in the palm trees? I would love to hear about how our suburban creatures deal. Hope you are doing well, safe and snuggled up. Danielle Harkis. So this is a great question. What do little birdies do in the rain? Some birds, we know waterfowl love the water, but a lot of birds are not semi-aquatic. They don't necessarily love to get wet. But here's the thing, even though birds may not look waterproof, 
Birds actually have surprisingly good protection from the elements. Uh, their outer feathers are covered in a natural oil, which repels water. You know that saying rolls off like water off a duck's back? That is due to how these oils on their feathers pro provides a hydrophobic coating and keeps them waterproof. So the outer feathers are actually called veined feathers, which are characterized by a sturdy central shaft, which supports the vein. The feathery part of the feather that like has that solid shape, you know, that feather shape, that is what the vein is. It's this, this solid feather shape, like when you think of the character characteristic bird feather like think about how like if you've ever held like an eagle feather or a larger feather and you think about like how stiff it is and if you wave it around you can feel some wind resistance uh that is a vein feather and they need these for flight they need to be stiff and uh water resistant so they can maintain their shape for flight and then under this outer layer are the downy feathers. These are the smaller, very fuzzy feathers that almost look like fur. Uh, they don't have a rigid shape. They're just poofy and fluffy. And these are for insulation and warmth. So basically, birds have this outer raincoat, this waterproof outer shell, and then a cozy sweater underneath that. Of course, like if they can find some shelter in a tree, uh, they're going to be very happy for that because non-aquatic birds tend not to like to get super soaking wet. But, you know, they do have some natural protection and that's really important because they need to be able to fly even if they get a little bit of moisture on them. And here is a question from actually my friend Hannah Michaels, who's been on the show before. Who writes, I remember whale bones had something to do with evolution, but not what they had to do with evolution. Do you remember? Also, why did that bio professor contact me a year after I graduated for marriage advice? Uh, thank you for this question, Hannah. Uh, I do not know the answer to why your bio professor wanted marriage advice from you. I I'm going to say, though, because I know how well-versed you are in the world of Garfield comics, that maybe he thinks you'd have insight into the conflicts between man and cat. And I guess that also extends to man and wife. Anyways, we did a great episode with Hannah uh, and also Joey Clift on the animals that we ranked on a scale of how Garfield-like they were. So that was, a, that was a fun episode. Now, to answer the whale part of the question, so you are absolutely correct. Whale bones really do show a really interesting story when it comes to evolution. So they demonstrate the unusual path that cetaceans, which are whales, dolphins, and porpoises, took on their evolutionary journey. So they are mammals who once lived on land and decided to go back to the sea. Every whale, dolphin, and porpoise, they are a descendant of a land mammal. So their bones actually show this journey. You can see vestigial hind feet, uh, that are very small, and you can barely even really see them when the whale is like a full fleshed out whale, but you can see definitely see them in the whale skeleton. And then the front toe or finger bones of the whales you can see have been modified. They actually have these, these joints that really could only be explained as having once been used in a front foot. 
And their pelvic bone and spine also indicates that they evolved from mammals who walked on land. So when fish swims, like, you know, you've got your, your, your tuna or your salmon or whoever, they have this side-to-side undulating motion, whereas whales and other cetaceans swim with an up-and-down undulation motion. So you look at the difference between a whale uh, fin and a fish fin. Um, fish fins have those uh, upright vertical fins, whereas whales have those sideways horizontal uh, fins. And then so that facilitates that up-and-down swimming motion for the whale. And that up and down motion of the spine matches that of terrestrial four-legged mammals who, when they walk up, like when they walk uh, on all fours, there's actually this undulating up and down motion of the spine, which matches the up and down motion of the spine of whales and dolphins. So that shows that evolutionary history of like, well, why do whales swim differently from fish well they evolved from land mammals whose spines and hip joints actually originally evolved to facilitate traversing on land uh just so you get a picture of like what these early ancestors actually looked like uh some of these super early land mammals that were the ancestors of whales like Endohylus actually looked like a small dog deer like thing. They're really, really interesting looking. It's like it looks a little bit like a like a chevrotain. If uh, I think we've talked about that on the show before, they're these teeny tiny, cute little deer like animals. And then their later ancestors who became semi aquatic, like Ambulocetus, actually looked like kind of huge weird-looking, long-snouted otters, and they grew to be up to 10 feet or 3 meters big. So if you can imagine, like, a big, long, very toothy otter, that's sort of what the Ambulocetus looked like, and uh, that was, like, what they had started to evolve into before they made further uh, further developments towards becoming whale-like or dolphin-like and they lost their fur, of course, because they have that nice layer of blubber to keep them warm, and they don't need, need that fur insulation. So we're going to take a real quick break, and then I will be right back to answer some more of your questions. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. 
So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back, and I am answering your questions today about animals. Uh, That's right. And if you want your question answered on the show, you can send me an email at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com on the internet. And, yeah, I mean, you can ask me any question, really. Mostly if you ask it about animals, that's what I'll be able to answer. If you're like, hey, what's the best? music band in the world I'll probably give you a pretty uh you know biased answer I'm not an expert I can't tell you what the best music band in the world is but when it comes to, an- to animals yeah sure I'll, g- I'll give you an answer all right so here is a question from Jay's Harrison I hope I pronounced your name wrong or no I hope I pronounced it right I hope I pronounced your name wrong Take that, Jays or J- JC. Anyways, no, I'm sorry. I hope I pronounced it right. Um, so also this person requested that I read this in an Australian accent, which I kind of assume this is a form of bullying against me because I'm bad at accents. Um, uh, I think this person is from Australia, though. So I will try, and I'm sorry, and I apologize to all of Australia for this, but I have been dared to do it, so I have to. Anyways, here's the question. Here's me trying to do it in in an Australian accent. Here we go. Do dogs have any concept that a car is operated by a human, or do they basically think, oh yeah, we're going in the box now, and when we stop, we'll be in a different place? Please read in an Australian accent from J.C. Harrison. Thank you for the question. Thanks for making me read that in an Australian accent, which I'm great at. Um, So great question, though. So as far as I know, dogs don't really have a great ability to nest concepts, especially like nesting mechanical concepts. Uh, Even their wild counterparts, the wolves who are much better at solving puzzles than dogs are, particularly because wolves seem to have this sense of like, it's up to them to solve the puzzle, whereas dogs like to give up on a puzzle and then just look at their owner pathetically because they kind of know we're going to help them at some point. So they invest less in these problem-solving skills and invest more in human-loving skills. Um, But some dogs do seem to pick up on patterns really well. They are very intelligent in a lot of ways. So for instance, stray dogs in Moscow have figured out how to ride the subway and they can commute from 
more rural areas where they like to sleep at night into the city area where they're able to beg for food from humans. So they've learned the patterns of the subway, how to get on and off. That doesn't necessarily mean they understand what the subway is or how it works, but they've learned the pattern of if I go to this place, I am magically transported to this other place, and then I can go and beg for food and get get free, free scraps. And another thing that dogs are really good at is being able to read physical cues from humans, and they pick up on that in terms of understanding like what is safe, what they should do, like like what they should trust. So uh, if you get into a car with them and they learn car trips are usually good things happening, it's not always going to the VET. Sometimes it's going to the park or visiting friends and you have maybe a relaxed demeanor. Uh, they will often associate it as a happy place and they trust you. So they know like we're getting in the car. Uh, they don't know that necessarily you're driving the car, but they trust you because you've led them there and they have no reason not to trust you. Now, given that some dogs do have a bad association with car trips and it's not nothing that you have done, like they might get motion sickness or anxious due to the sounds or the sights of the road. And that can be kind of hard. Like if you have a relatively anxious dog, it can be hard to train them that it's really okay, you know, especially if they have tummy aches, that's like, you know, it's really hard to explain to them that that sensation will go away. Um, But, you know, they probably still feel reassured by your presence, like they know that uh, ultimately they're safe in your care. And yeah, like as very social animals, animals that have co-evolved with humans and they're basically their whole survival strategy is to be friends with us humans, they are highly attuned to our our body language and um, and they like to take notice of like what we're doing and and what they can trust. So uh, this also takes the form of like when they see you eating food, they really want what you eat. And it really doesn't matter what you're eating. You could be eating like broccoli or something that they may not really want to have, but they will still beg you for that food uh, because they really trust your opinion on food. Often they will prefer what you have on your plate versus what they have in your bowl, even if it's the exact same thing. Hopefully, like, you know, you're not eating dog food. I I don't think you should do that. But again, they just really prefer to figure out what you're doing, what you're interested in. They're highly attuned to that. So in terms of puzzle solving or being able to have these concepts of you having control over a car, I'm not so sure but they definitely have this concept of like, hey, when I'm, whenever I'm with my human, things generally work out, you know, th- we're going to have a good time. All right. So for our next question, this is from Jean-Luc Piocorgi. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a, a, oh, no, no, wait, wait. Oh, I get it now. I get it now. Let me retake it. Jean-Luc Picorgi, the Corgi version of Jean-Luc Picard. So this is the question. Sperm whales go super deep in the water, and they're not weird jelly balls that explode when they are pulled up to the surface pressure like a lot of abyssal creatures. How do they do that? Especially because they have lungs. This is is a great question. Uh, Yeah, why don't sperm whales turn into a big pile of exploded organs like we probably would if we were forced unprotected into the depths of the ocean? So a little background on this. Sperm whales travel up to 2,000 meters under the sea. Humans 
For reference, will start to get squished by water pressure at about 30 meters, where it becomes harder to breathe due to the pressure on our lungs and our heart rates start to fall. Professional divers have reached depths up to 120 meters, but not for extended periods of time and only very carefully. Don't try this at home. I mean, I don't even think you could try it at home. I don't think you would have a 120 meter tall bathtub, but if you do, don't try it. Uh, because, first of all, if you go m further past that, it starts to get really hard to survive because your internal organs are going to start to turn into kind of a gooey salad inside your body. Also, divers have to deal with the bins, uh, which is a process of, like, decompression as you come back up to the surface, which affects not just your organs, but, like, the gases inside of your body, and it can cause all sorts of bad stuff to happen. Um, so in terms of deep sea critters, uh, most deep sea organisms are actually specially designed for these pressure. So, uh, they don't have air-filled cavities in their body because liquids can't be compressed like air. So if you are a human and you're like, I'm going to dive to the bottom of the sea, uh, and you have, a, you know, you've got air in your body, right? Like you've got lungs full of air and you dive down, your lungs are going to get crushed in because that air inside your lung is getting squeezed into a much smaller area. Uh, liquids, meanwhile, basically can't really be compressed um, that much. So like, so like if you're a fish and fish that are not at these deep sea levels will have swim bladders that allow them to achieve sort of stability and buoyancy. And often these swim bladders are filled with a gas but with deep sea fish, their swim bladders are filled with oil instead of gas so that they don't get crushed. But sperm whales breathe air. They are a mammal, they have lungs, and they have to come to the surface to breathe air every so often. So how do they dive without damage? They're actually specially designed to be able to withstand repeated lung collapse. So their rib cage is flexible and they have reinforced airways and lungs that are designed to be able to collapse when they're deep underwater. And then when they resurface, their lungs and rib cage can expand again without damage. And so in order to store oxygen at these depths, uh, because like they're not going to really be able to store air in their lungs and keep it there. Um, so that that's both can cause some of the issues in terms of like the bins where you have like as you surface too fast, like these gases in your lungs can start to like as they like expand and dissolve basically causes this cellular damage, tissue damage. They don't rely on the, on the air in their lungs. They let the lungs basically collapse and push all the air out. And in order for them to continue to get oxygen while they're that deep in the water, they actually have a very high concentration of hemoglobin in their blood, and they have a huge amount of blood. So by having so much hemoglobin, which carries oxygen, throughout your uh, vascular system. In fact, these sperm whales have like twice the concentration of hemoglobin than humans do. They can actually store a lot of oxygen in their blood. Um, so yeah, that's why sperm whales are good at diving. And if we tried to do that, we would turn into salad jelly. So don't, don't do that.
All right. Our next question is from Nano Naturalists, who writes, Baculum. Why? <laughs> so the baculum is da, 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 the penis bone. It is a bone that supports the penile tissues and erection during mating in animals who have a penis. So the question really isn't, in my opinion, why baculum, but actually why not baculum? Because most mammals, including our primate cousins, have them. Humans, as well as some other animals like cetaceans, which we just talked about, whales, uh, ungulates, which are hooved animals, elephants, rabbits, hyenas, and manatees all do not have a baculum. So it, it's weird, right? Like we, like our close relatives, primates, uh, often do have the baculum. Humans don't, and a handful of other animals also do not have it. So uh, a little bit of background on the baculum. It is a bone that is inside of the penis and it will help support the penis, uh, especially in terms of mating. And it allows for actually longer mating periods because it helps support uh, erectile tissue. In addition to the baculum is the baubellum, which is the bone found in the clitoris in many mammals, although not in humans. The clitoris is sort of the the female uh, analog of the penis, and the baubellum, therefore, is the female analog of the baculum. So the baubellum actually is, is interesting because it has gone through much more, like, frequent and rapid evolutionary changes, like loss in um, mass or, or just, like, being reduced over time or even being lost. So there's this idea that it may not be as functional in some species, um, but there's actually, as far as I know, there seems to be a lot less research on the bulbellum than on the baculum. So, hey, you know, penis bone scientists and, and clitoris bone scientists, break that clitoral bone ceiling. Let's get some more research on that. Unless I'm just not aware of it. In, case, in that case, please send me bulbellum research. Uh, just I spam me with it. That'd be great. So in terms of why humans don't have a baculum or a bobellum, the answer isn't necessarily clear, but there are a few theories. Um, here are some of my favorites. One is that getting rid of the baculum made sex more fun for humans because it made the penis more flexible. And it's important for a species for sex to have a reward because you need to have sex in most cases in order to have offspring. And so we are a species that relies, relies on sex to have offspring. And if sex is uh, no fun, then why would we do it? So it's got to it's got to be fun. And so if getting rid of the baculum made sex more fun, uh, then that would that would be a positive evolutionary trait to have. Another theory is that it encouraged the lack of the baculum encouraged more frequent but shorter copulation sessions so in humans um estrus which is ovulation and fertility of the ovaries uh it's hidden there are no external signs unlike for other animal mammals where there may be like a scent or like in giraffes in fact uh, the males will actually drink the female's urine to see if they're in estrus but as far as I know, no such thing exists for humans. So 
having sex more frequently, even if it's for shorter periods of time, would actually have been preferable because you're basically it's like playing at, at a sex casino. Like you're you don't necessarily know when it's going to pay out, but if you keep doing it over and over, it eventually will. That's actually more of a pro-sex message that I'm trying to get out than it is a pro-casino message because, of course, like the house always wins. Casino, it's actually not pure chance. Uh, but like, so what I'm saying is don't go to a casino. Anyways, um, but yeah, so the more that uh, humans have sex, basically, the more chance there would be to get uh, get it at the right time of fertility to be able to have offspring. Another theory is that if early humans were more monogamous, there would actually be less sperm competition. So if you're more of a monogamous species, uh, males don't have to compete as more, especially on the sperm level. Like they may basically most of the competition happens at the point of mate initial mate selection, but after that, their sperm doesn't really have to compete with each other that much. Um, so if humans are more monogamous, uh, you just don't need longer sessions of mating because you don't, like, in terms of sperm competition, that favors, like, getting as much, passing along as much sperm as possible, and that can mean longer mating sessions. Uh, whereas, like, if you're monogamous or at least semi-monogamous, uh, you don't have to compete as much with other male sperm, so you don't need to have that really long mating session uh, because it is it is actually costly, like, you know, for any species to have really long mating sessions, uh, especially, you know, in our early stages of evolution, because you don't want to spend too much time distracted. It's also an energy cost. Um, and even producing a lot of sperm, that is an energy cost. So, you know, being somewhat more energy efficient with with sex, this theory may tie into the other theories I've mentioned, too, where it's like, you know, maybe it's just favoring sort of these more frequent copulations, but shorter and more fun. And then another theory that I think is maybe my favorite, but uh, that bipedal walking made the penis more vulnerable to injury. And if you have a bone in there and you trip and fall, you get a broken penis bone. Nobody wants a broken penis bone. So we just got rid of the whole dang bone because come on, like, ha no. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with a few more listener questions. And we are back with more listener questions. Here is another great questions. I got to thank you guys again for sending these in. You always ask such amazing questions. Often it sends me down a research tunnel of reading a lot of interesting papers that I otherwise might not have so I really appreciate it. And this is a really good one, too. So this is from Sukal, uh, who writes in, I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard there was an animal that didn't have blind spots because their eyes evolved their receptor cells in the front. Do you know anything about that? And this is, oh, also their, their nickname is definitely not nine snakes in a trench coat which is specific, but I get, because I'm definitely not a flock of birds in a human-shaped robot machine. Anyways, so yes, there are animals that do not have blind spots because their eyes evolve differently from mammalian eyes. One such animal is the octopus and other cephalopods. 
So they do not have a blind spot because their eyeballs are designed differently than mammals. In fact, their eyes likely evolved independently from ours, as did their brains and nearly everything about them. Our last common ancestor with octopuses and other cephalopods was likely an ancient flatworm with just a few basic nerves and eye spots. So this is really kind of an incredible example of parallel evolution. Um, so let's talk about our human eyeballs. So the photoreceptor cells in our eyes are actually behind the nerve fiber fibers that run along the inside of the retina to the optic nerve that runs through and behind our eyes and will transmit information to our brains. So basically, imagine this. You have a little photoreceptor cell, and in front of the receptor cell is a thin wire. And there are many of these cells, each with their thin wire coming out of the front, and that is the nerve fiber. Um, and so if you have like a bunch of these and the fibers sort of all kind of like going bent around to all lead to a major bundle of these wires like throughout where the the actual cells are with their thin wires light can actually pass through these thin wires but once they're all bundled up into this large mass cable of these collected fibers that's that's too solid it's too dense for there to be any receptor cells behind and so that is the blind spot that big bundle of of uh, nerve fibers, which is called the optic nerve. And this eyeball design is called an inverted retina, and this is the case for vertebrates. On the opposite end of eyeballs is the verted retina, which is found in cephalopods and other invertebrates. Basically, their photoreceptor nerve fibers are behind the photoreceptor cells. So that big bundle of wires that makes up the optic nerve is actually behind the photoreceptor cells, and therefore there's no blind spot. So, uh, you know, it's there's a lot of, like, kind of question of, like, okay, well, why is this? Why do octopuses have this different eyeball design? I mean, one thing is that it's important to note, like, if you have parallel evolution, while you may have a very similar end result uh, there can be these like interesting differences that can result from just kind of quirks of evolution. There's something called an evolutionary spandrel, which is actually a term borrowed from architecture where you have a spandrel, which is where when you have like two, I think it's basically like two corners of a structure meeting, you have like an arch thin, like a rectangular passageway. You have these two where the arch meets the corners of the rectangle. You have these like triangles. And these are purely just because the physics of the design requires these triangles to be there. They're, they don't really serve any function necessarily, uh, structurally or otherwise. But like these spandrels would often be decorated and stuff uh, in architecture. And so like it's this question of like, wait, what, what are these things? It's like they don't seem to serve any purpose. And it's they, they don't really. They just happen to be there because of the way an arch in a rectangle has to be constructed. So similarly, there are a lot of things that happen in evolutionary biology where you'll have a structure that is maybe puzzling, but it just turns out like that is how the structure had to form due to physical constraints. So uh, some research indicates that the inverted retina of vertebrates 
may have been a way to save space inside the eyeball. So like if you have a tiny fish, uh, it may have allowed this fish to evolve with really good vision without taking too much of the fish's body mass in eyeball space. But uh, yeah, it's it's still a, I, I don't think there's a definitive answer to this um, quite yet, but it's, it is really fascinating. Uh, I just wouldn't necessarily say that an inverted retina is like an example of um, bad, bad eyeball design, like the blind spot, definitely like a blind spot. It's like, okay, well, why would we have this? There may be, there has to be some evolutionary reason to make up for the fact that there's a blind spot because that does seem to be like a slightly um, deleterious thing. But yeah, there could be a really solid reason for it that is yet to be sort of decisively discovered. So the last two questions I'm going to address are really related. So the first one is from Waffles the Magic, and who writes, what great mystery of evolutionary biology would you like to get the answer to? So I'm going to do the annoying thing and answer this question with another question. This is from my friend and guest of the show, actually, Daniel Whiteson of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, who sent in a listener question asking, what do we know about abiogenesis? So abiogenesis, simply put, is the origin of life. It's the emergence of life from non-living compounds. Like, how did the first living cell form on Earth? So you may have heard of the primordial soup, and we're often shown like an image of a fish-like creature emerging from a puddle of like prehistoric stew, but it's very complicated, and it's it's a lot more complicated than like, oh, this like life just kind of randomly emerged from a random puddle. Um, uh, so this issue of abiogenesis is really complex and has elicited a lot of research, and it's not it's a mystery that I wouldn't say it's like, oh, it's an unsolved mystery, but it's it's not I, I'd say it's like not definitively solved, but there are so many really compelling theories about it and so many studies in, involved looking at this. So um, basically, life has to start from like a chain of proteins. So Early Earth had bodies of water with the right chemical components to be able to make strands of protein. So there, there have been a lot of studies establishing that we did have the right chemical compounds in order to make these protein chains. Um, and you'd need some uh, kind of energy source. So various theories exist on this, like it could be from lightning or radiation, like like. Uh, solar radiation, or even from deep sea hydrothermal vents, which would be a different theory from the one of like, it's from a surface puddle, like what if it happened, you know, deeper down in, in these seas. So the reason you need a chain of protein is that these strands of protein are the foundation of DNA, which is the instruction manual for all life. So once you have this, these chains of protein, you can uh, start to make something like DNA, and then that can be used as the instruction manual to build life, sort of like an IKEA manual. It's hopeless to build anything unless you have that cool IKEA manual with the little little dudes drawn on it, where they don't talk words, but they show you how to hold the wrench and stuff. Anyways, 
Uh, the big problem with the primordial soup theory is the chaos that would be occurring on like this like uh, roiling soup of materials. Like even if you have all of the compounds and you have the energy required for the chemical reaction to create a strand of protein, a strand of protein is very delicate. So how could that be formed in a chaotic, turbulent soup uh, without getting torn apart? every time it starts to form. So there's actually a few theories that may explain this. There is the primordial pizza hypothesis, which makes me hungry. It is that life formed in shallow sheets of water on the land. So by having this like flat pizza-like pool of water, you would have a less chaotic environment for biological molecules to form. But that's comes with a bit of a problem, right? Because if it's this shallow sh pizza sheet of something like how you may not have enough components within that that surface area to be able to create a chain of proteins. So that that would seem like it would take a lot of a lot of missed chances to be able to form. Uh, but there's this other theory as well that is called the primordial soup and sandwich. I do love that like all of the names for the theories of the origin of life is food-based because it really tells you what these researchers, like where their minds were at. Like they're probably doing all this research, skipping lunch, they're really hungry, and they're like, yeah, this could be like a primordial soup and a sandwich. Uh, so this is actually a really, really interesting theory by physicist Helen Hansma, um, which I like to call uh, primordial baklava, actually. So the theory goes that these thin sheets of mica, which is a silicate mineral, uh, may have formed uh, inside of like a body of water, like a primordial soup, which, and by having like these, these thin layers of mica, little biological molecules could have sought shelter between these flakes um, and squeezed into the structures and then been able to form these delicate chains, these delicate protein chains for forming things like RNA and cellular structure. And that would, uh, you know, basically she's combining the concept of like a primordial soup where you have a bunch of compounds that could possibly, you know, bump into each other and form these protein chains and the idea of like you need a stable protected environment in which this could happen, which I, I really love this theory, and not just because it makes me think of baklava and makes me hungry. Um, and then there's, of course, the theory that maybe a meteor crashed on Earth with some simple alien life on it. Uh, but in my opinion, like, even if this were true, it wouldn't answer everything, right? Because we would still need an explanation on how that alien life formed on its home planet. So... I think if I could get a definitive answer on how life could start, uh, not only would I be like super famous and solve one of the greatest uh, mysteries of life, I feel like, yeah, it would, uh, I would be <laughs> probably one of the most famous uh, people on the earth and I would be very smart and I would start a podcast called Primordial Soup and a Sandwich, please. I'll have what she's having. Yep, that's what I'd do with that <laughs> earth-shattering discovery. Anyways, 
Thank you guys so much for these questions. Really interesting questions. Uh, I hope that I have answered them well and that you enjoyed learning just a little bit about the, the gosh darn spaceship we all call planet Earth. You know what I mean? This gosh darn blue marble in the universe just flying around the, the USS Earth. Okay, I'm going to stop. Uh, but thank you so much. If you want to ask me questions, because I'm certainly going to do more of these listener questions uh, podcasts in the future, you can send me an email at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Instagram at creaturefeaturepod. Uh, and then on Twitter, it's creaturefeatpod. F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That is something very different. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show and you would like to leave me a rating or review, that would help me immensely. Not only do I read them all and really love to read them and it really warms my heart to get feedback and to get positive comments, it also tangibly helps the podcast because by leaving a review, you're telling all the algorithms that it's a worthwhile podcast and that helps me out with convincing the podcast robots, you know, to like my show uh, and thank you to the Space Classics for their super awesome song Exolumina Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts like the one you just heard visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or hey guess what where have you listened to your shows look I'm not gonna judge you I'm never gonna judge you where you listen to your shows from see you next Wednesday are you ready to take charge of your health journey look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health with their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.